You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. And today we're going to seek to cover, well, I don't know how many verses we're going to seek to cover. An interesting thing, somewhat humorous, and I'm going to blame Ronnie Qualls actually. I told him I would. I was talking with Ronnie on the phone this week, and I was working on bulletins. And I didn't even change the sermon title from last week. I wasn't sure what I was going to call it yet. All I knew is that I was going to start at verse 14, and then I put a dash. And in my conversation with Ronnie, I got carried away, and I forgot to finish that part of the bulletin before I printed it. I thought, well, I'm not going to reprint them and waste all that paper and ink. So I just left it there, and I thought, well, maybe that's a little prophetic, because I had originally intended on going down through verse 21. There's no way. Um, so I just pray that the Lord would direct our thoughts. Um, for context's sake, I would ask you to go ahead and stand with me if you're able. And let's read together verses 14 through 21. And then we will pray and begin. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Thank you. May be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to bow with me to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh God, I come to you now confessing presumption, self-confidence, and even, Lord, the constant temptation towards showmanship and a desire to please others and be applauded by others, O oh God. And even saying that could be an act of false piety before men. Lord, I pray that this time would be genuine. O oh God, we need You to speak to us, to our souls. Lord, I pray that You would continue sanctifying Your people. God, open our understanding to Your Word that we might Grow by it and deepen in our affection for you. Lord, I pray that you would shut my mouth with regard to anything which is wrong. And not only that which is wrong, Father, but that which would distract or hinder from what is true. Oh God, I ask for unction and authority to speak boldly as you would have me to. Father, lead us now. Continue your work in us. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Don't you just love that? You begin praying something. And it feels rather humble. And then you start thinking about how humble you are in the middle of your prayer. You've got to repent of your prayer. The Lord help us. Well, we begin in verse 14. And I'm not exactly sure if we'll actually get out of verse 14 today. Though we will be considering as many of these verses as we're able. And we start off here by this expression from Jesus. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The first expression, he says, I have given them your word. Now, this expression, your word, this is a central theme of the Gospel of John. And this is a central focus in his prayer here in John 17. If we were to have covered all the way down through verse 21 and even beyond that into the end of this chapter, we would continue to see this emphasis. We've seen this all the way through. Jesus came to proclaim the words that were given to Him by the Father. That's constantly what He's doing. It's what He has been doing. And here, in His prayer, He's referring back to that Word. And I maintain it's going to be significant. In the Sunday school hour right now, we're covering sanctification in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. And on the theme of sanctification, we've, reckoned, we've looked at this section of Scripture. We looked at especially verse 17. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then he goes on to 19 and says, and for their sake, I consecrate or sanctify. It's the same word myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And we've been seeing in the epistles primarily that this this end or this progressive sanctification worked out in the lives of Christian people is absolutely necessary. And more than necessary, it is certain Jesus is praying this exact thing. And so here is the title of this message, Sanctified, Not of the World. Sanctified. I believe in a lot of what Jesus says here. These things, in other words, go together when he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. And we're going to develop these thoughts more. But just at the very beginning, I believe what Jesus is driving at in this first part is to say your sanctification will be intimately related to his word, to his word. If you're looking to be sanctified apart from his word, you're looking in the wrong place. He's saying in a lot of this word, the very word of God that he has been giving to these disciples, that is where you're going to experience sanctification. And I'll go further. How many of us as Christians at times feel like our growth in sanctification is somewhat lacking or stunted? Feel like I'm not seeing the amount of growth that I wish I was seeing. I'm not experiencing a a love even for God that I would like to have. Let me put it forward to you that there is a connection between Christian weakness and a lack of understanding and investment in the Scriptures. Just for a moment, I want to read again from our call to worship in Psalm 1. Think about the relationship between these things. Verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now let me say that description that we have of a blessed man in Psalm 1, that that blessedness that he's enjoying is not primarily to be understood through material prosperity. That's the language that's used. But you have to understand, this is driving at, pointing at something much more significant than that. It's not carnal. The healthy tree in Psalm 1, the healthy, the blessed man who's a healthy tree is one that bears fruit and it does not wither. This is a description of growth and blessedness in the Christian life. This is sanctification. And notice in Psalm 2, it flows directly out of a delighting in the law or word of God. Exactly the same as we're seeing in our text. There is this inseparable, inseparable relationship between growth and sanctification and a relationship with the Word of God. And there will be an evidence of constant progress and love for God, and this love for God will be fruitfully evident. And we see that expressly there in Psalm 2. Now here's the point. There are two, I believe, two primary errors that people make when it comes to sanctification. Two main mistakes that people make when it comes to their growth as Christians. And here they are. The first, and the one that I believe is most common today amongst professing Christians, is they, they try to live as if they don't need to know or study God's Word in order to grow. This is much more frequent than we would like to admit or acknowledge, and it's probably more frequent in us than we would like to admit as genuine, reformed, even Christians, that we neglect the Scriptures and our focus and attention of the Word of God and still somehow expect that we're going to grow in our sanctification. And it's certainly true in those other places, the nominal Christianity, that don't see much need at all for reading or spending time with God and His Word. Charles Spurgeon once said, there's enough dust on some of your Bibles to write the word damnation with your finger. Yeah. Not growth, a rejection or a, really a, a neglect of God's Word. The truth of His Word is a pervasive problem. And let me ask you this. How many people do you know that have a robust, professing Christians, mind you, that have a robust understanding of their job, their career, or, or their hobbies, and they're constantly studying these things, trying to advance and improve themselves, and yet they have little to no understanding of the Scriptures. Do you know people like that? Are you like that? Someone who, if you have a hobby, something that means a lot to you, you will study it, you know it, you know language and terminology, you'll watch videos, you're invested in it. It means something to you. And yet, you look at these Scriptures and say, well, that's pretty hard to understand. I don't really know that I can get into that and grow from it and a neglect that sets in. It's a sad thing to hear and in the way that we build our lives around those things that interest us, I just asked someone this, this week. I said, you know, if you were offered a job from your employer and they brought you a manual like this thick, I think I heard maybe Paul Washer say something like this one time. But either way, it's true, regardless of where it originates. That if you take a man and you say, here, 
I'm going to give you a promotion and double your salary, but in two weeks you need this thing. You need to know it backwards and forwards. He'll go to sleep with it. He'll read it day and night. He'll not put the thing down. Why? Because he wants the promotion and the job and the money. But God gives us His Word. This book that is food indeed for the soul. And He says to us, here's my Word to you. And how much is it neglected? It reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Whoever hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock, the rock of his word, building a house on the rock of his word. And whenever the storm comes, the wind and the rains and beat on the house, it doesn't fall because it's been founded on the rock. It's built on the rock. And then he compares that with the foolish person who builds their house or their life on sand, not on his word, and it falls. That's the first primary error, is a neglect. To think you're going to grow in your sanctification without the Word of God is the first error. The second primary error, which is more common in serious-minded people who profess to know Christ, is a dead commitment to the Scriptures with no real love for the God who gave them. And you may think, well, surely that can't be. There can't be people who really love the Bible and take serious their commitment to knowing the Bible who don't actually love God. Well, that is the case. There are many in such a condition, and there have been since Jesus' day and before. You see, there are those who cannot say with the blessed man in Psalm 1 that they delight in the law of the Lord. These are the kinds of people that they, to them, the law is merely a means to their end, and their end is not God. Their end may be whatever they hope to escape from because of their obedience to a command, whatever suffering. This is the kind of thing that that really holds up something like an Alcoholics Anonymous program. Here's a law. Here's something for you to pursue. A good rule, a helpful rule that will bless your life if you do it. It'll It'll help you escape from those things. But that's not Christian sanctification. That's not what God gives us in this book. For we come to know and love the one who's given us that law. A spiritless pursuit of the scriptures may produce a correct understanding of the truth, but it will not and cannot produce a genuine love of the truth. Second Corinthians chapter three. Second Corinthians three. Verses 4 through 6 tell us of this relationship to the law apart from the Spirit and what that produces in a person. 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 4, says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You can love the letter. You can love the truth as it's helpful to you without having life in you. It's only the Spirit that gives life. And my argument is, all under this heading of sanctification, 
is that true sanctification is not measured by you individually getting victory over certain sins or failures so that you can escape the negative consequences of those sins and failures. And that's how we're often prone to think. I'm growing in my sanctification. I'm putting to death the deeds of the body, right? That's the language of the Bible. And yet we measure that by how we benefit from escaping those things that we're likely to be ensnared by. That's not the biblical definition. True sanctification is a sovereign work of the Spirit of God. And it is an answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17, which sets His people apart from the world. That's the context that they're not of the world. I've given them your word so that they would not be of the world. It's his word that makes us not of the world in order that we would be set apart unto himself by that very word. That's the flow of thought in these verses before us here. So he says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Here's the next question. Does the world hate you? Are you of the world? I just feel like that's one of those questions we ought to sit under for a minute. Are you of the world? Jesus says of his people, They're not of the world. Do you know how much time contemporary Christian movements spend trying to structure the world and society around them in order that they would be accepted by it? There are widespread movements today which seem to be so bent on being relevant within the world that they've lost all distinction with it. There is effectively no difference between them and the world. And the question comes, this is so personal. Do non-Christians, when they're around you, have a sense that there's something different about you than themselves? Is there something about you that sets you apart from them? Now, I don't mean probably what you think I mean. The common conceptions of what it means to be of to be in the world or to be of the world is that you do certain things. People will say, well, that's worldly. You're of the world if you do what kinds of things? People will say, well, if you have excessive drinking or smoking or fornicating, sleeping around, foul mouth, these things. That's how we measure being of the world. And while I'll admit that those things certainly may be indications of someone who is of the world, the Scripture gives us a much clearer definition of what it means to be of the world. And I say that very intentionally because, you know, there are people alive today and you'll interact with some of them. We discussed some this hour, this very thing in the Sunday school. Do you know people that are very moral? Very upright, very kind, very generous, very good people in society that it would not be true to say of them, they're holy, they're sanctified, they don't love God. They do very good things perhaps and measure themselves by themselves, but they don't know God. I say this because those kinds of folks would get along well with the Pharisees in the Scripture. 
who didn't love God at all, according to Jesus, but they loved their own self-righteousness. How does the Bible define being of the world or worldliness? First, John two, one for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. Now, there's an interesting distinction in the text. Jesus says they're not of the world. The world hates them because they're not of the world. And then John tells us in his later epistle that these things, desire of the flesh, desire of the eyes and pride of life, those things are not from the Father, but from the world. That tells me that something about not being of the world is going to be rooted in a relationship to the Father. That's exactly what that's telling you. It's not from the Father. But from the world, that means there's a distinction and a hard line between that which is from the father and that which is from the world. Immediately, that will tell you that worldliness is going to have something to do with the relationship or lack thereof to God, the father. And notice what those things that John highlights in that epistle are. Desire of the flesh, the eyes and the pride of life, the biblical teaching. Is that worldliness and immorality come forth from the seed of desire? We observe them through gross immorality and, and, and sensuality and these kinds of things, but that's not where they start. And that's not really what, what differentiates ultimately true sanctification from morality. Now, it ought to go without saying that Christian people ought not live. The same way that those in the world do in their gross, gross expressions. And I say it ought to go without saying. And I suppose maybe amongst genuine Christians it does go without saying. But there are many people today living with as much perversion and godlessness in the world. Around us, even in this community, who say I love Christ. And they live in carnality and sin. And we're not doing them any favors in pretending that they're not. Now, I'm not saying that we need to go out there and start our own crusade and tell everybody how much more righteous we are than they are. But if there are people in your life who hate God and get along just fine with you, maybe you ought to examine is there compromise to be found in you? Those things which the Scriptures highlight as indicating being of the world, you'll notice, are all measured in here, aren't they? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. That is, those desires are the seeds of immorality and ungodliness. The thing about us which is most important is what we actually desire. Here's my question. Sanctification. Are your desires sanctified? Are your desires themselves set apart unto God? Another way of putting that, do you delight in God? Do you delight in Him? Do you find joy and satisfaction in God Himself? Because this will be the root of all sanctification. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, we considered this some months back, but let me repeat to you again. Every single sin that you commit is an indication that at the moment you've committed that sin, you have failed to love Christ. It's relational. Imagine this. Imagine if you are constantly committing adultery against your spouse, constantly sleeping around. And every time that you got caught, you tell your spouse, I know I messed up again. I just need to get better at it. And the entire time your spouse is looking at you and they're saying, why aren't you loving me? This isn't about a law that doesn't affect me. And that's what sin is. It's not loving him, the one who's given the law. And I'm arguing that if we want to know real sanctification, we're going to to view it through the lens of a personal and intimate relationship. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he tells us in our text, the world's hated them because they're not of the world. And what makes us not of the world is intimately connected to a relationship to God himself. And it's important that we say these things because you and I, we're all legalists by nature, aren't we? Our tendency, I want to grow, I want to be more godly, and we think that means give me a list of things to do, to check off. We all are inclined to ask, who's my neighbor? Somebody comes along, like the Lord Jesus Christ did one day, and says to a man, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, well, who is my neighbor, really? And who do I have to love? How far do I have to carry this out? And that's how we like to measure our obedience is give me a box to check so that I can say I've done enough according to the letter that kills, by the way, but according to the letter. The intimate nature of true sanctification does not allow for such a trivial or superficial accounting. You will not be content with saying I've done what I'm supposed to do. True sanctification drives you to the person. That's exactly where Jesus goes with us in verse 14. The last part. Just as I am not of the world. Here we begin to see the very foundations of all true sanctification. Jesus says his people are not of the world just as he was not of the world. Now, in order for us to understand how it is that you and I are supposed to be sanctified and go on experience this, experiencing this progressively, we've got to first realize what it means that Jesus Himself was sanctified. I read for you earlier on where Jesus says, I consecrate Myself, I sanctify Myself that they may be sanctified. If we want to know what it means for us to grow in that, we have to know what it means for Jesus. The standard which has been set before you is clear. He says... That they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And as a matter of fact, he repeats that again down in verse 16. He says it here in verse 14 in that exact statement in 16 again. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And that's essentially what that expression means. Not of the world. You have the world and those who are not of the world. That's literally the definition of sanctification. You're distinct. You're set apart. There's a division. There's something different in you. Something peculiar about you. To be sanctified is not of the world. Well, what does it mean when we read that Jesus is not of the world? Do we have the same relationship with the lost world that Jesus had? Consider with me from 1 Peter. You can turn there, take this down. 1 Peter 
chapter 1 in dealing with this and how Christian people are supposed to interact in a godless world. This is what He says to them. Verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You know what our tendency is when we read a verse like that? God says to you, be holy as I am holy. You know what my heart says? I can't do that. Is that wasted breath whenever God says, be holy as I am holy? Well, if our primary understanding of what that sanctified understanding, that holy thing is, is things I'm supposed to be doing, then I can say, well, I can't do that. But if you come to understand that the the very root of holiness is not only in what you do, but it's in what you love. Essentially, that's what I'm arguing for with Jesus. We've got to be clear on this point. If we're going to understand sanctification at all. You know, if you and I limit our understanding of holiness or sanctification to mean merely avoiding certain sins. And we're not going to understand what we've been called to or what Jesus is praying on our behalf in this text. And make no mistake, if you live on in unrepentant sin with no concern about your practical disobedience, you can have no confidence that you know God at all. None whatsoever. But I'm arguing that the point of Christian sanctification is that there's a heart that's been directed upward to the living God. And I love Him more than everything else. And so that compels me to live for Him. Not as a way to merit righteousness, but because I love Him. I'm saying to you that we, if we shortchange that for mere behavior modification, we're not understanding the Scriptures at all. You know, there's a, common, there's a movement today within Christian circles. Even folks who would be very much in agreement with us on issues such as the sovereignty of God, among other things. And there's this movement today. I actually know a man... Briefly, at least we're semi-connected. And he's got this common expression he likes to make. He borrowed Donald Trump's expression, make America great again. And he says, make America Puritan again. And it's all this push towards let's be Puritan again. And there's this great emphasis on the Puritan morality, which was strict. And it was upright. And it was according to the Scriptures. And my observation is, he's not alone. And a lot of these guys who are calling for this strict moral standard, of the Puritans is that they have completely ignored the Puritan devotion. You understand that's what's so precious about the Puritans is not that they said we're going to take all of our lives and make them captive to what we find in this book. It was that we love the living God and you'll find works. Go and read after Edwards or John Flavel or John Owen or John Bunyan and find these men that were so in love with Jesus Christ that they long to live for him. And you will not have Puritan morality without that same devotion. That's what I'm calling for. True holiness has to do with a relationship to God. A living relationship to God. And so I ask, if we are to be holy as He is holy, if our not being of the world is to be a reflection of Jesus not being of the world, let's ask some questions here. Why was it that Jesus Christ never sinned? Why not? 
Was he physically unable to engage in anything sinful? A lot of people think this way. What was the chief importance to the Lord? What was the source and foundation of Jesus Christ's righteous life? Let me walk with you for just a moment through some clear expressions, even here in John, that we've considered over the years we've been in it. All the way back in chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. There's the first thing. Why did Jesus not sin? He came to do the will of the Father. Even here in John 17 and verse 1, we looked at this where Jesus, it says, after He'd spoken these words, He lifted His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. He's come to do the will of the Father. He wants to glorify the Father. So the next thing we see in verse 4. Of John 17, Jesus says, I have glorified you. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. Does this not sound eerily similar to what's given to us as Christians from the Father? Things for us to do. Jesus says, I've come to do the Father's will. I've come to glorify the Father. I've come to accomplish the work that he's given me to do. Verse five, he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so again, here this presses forward. There's this desire for glory and relationship with the Father to be with the Father. And then in verse 11, last week, we heard him say. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me that they may be one, even as we are one. What does this tell you about why it is that Jesus Christ never sinned? Let me suggest to you it's because not He was walking around on eggshells afraid that if at any moment He might fall into some treacherous sin. He loved His Father. And He had an intimate relationship with His Father. He came to do the will of the Father. He came to glorify the Father, to accomplish the work the Father had given Him. He longed for this presence of the Father in relationship. And He and the Father were united and as one. I'm arguing the nature of the holiness of Christ was deeply relational. It is impossible for you to measure the life of Christ as revealed in the Scriptures without seeing on every page His relationship and love for the Father. That's what I'm telling you. Is, is it any wonder that whenever Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. And it shapes everything else. It's been rightly said in a lot of those Scriptures that the reason that there's a need for all the other commandments is because we don't follow that. And the foundation of this true sanctification that we're supposed to be not of the world as He is not of the world means that our thoughts, our intentions, our motives, and even the desires of our heart are compelled by love and a relationship to the living God. You know, I had someone ask me just this week. They said, 
As they measure their life, they notice highs and lows. They notice there are occasions where they can go extended periods without any prayer or real devotion to God. And they asked me what I thought. They said, does it mean I'm perhaps not even a Christian? And I said, well, it may mean that. But I told them, I said, "Here's, here's my ultimate analysis. When it comes to your growth in any field, really, the real question is, what is driving you? What's your why? You know, motivational speakers will compel you with why. And if you get the why right, you can produce a lot of good things. I've often asked people, you know, why do you think that Dave Ramsey is so successful? He's got a good system, but it's not mainly that. There's a lot of good systems. There's a lot of good budgets. The problem is most people don't stick to it. The reason he's successful is because people come on his show and do their debt-free screen. They come on there and say, we've become millionaires. And you hear that as one who's trying to employ his system and it motivates you, it encourages you. And my, my argument just in that analogy is that our why, our motivation, if your why is not a who, then you're starting in the wrong place. Your why must be a who. Now, I'll just tell you, I was sitting with Jim Reynolds when I was having this conversation and he's a witty, witty man. He says immediately to me, he says, my problem is that my why is always a who, but it's generally me. Well, that's honest. That's brutally honest. You know, if we don't come to understand that and see that about ourselves and what motivates and drives and compels us, what produces the desires within us, then we're really not going to appreciate Christ coming into the world as we ought to. I maintain that when Jesus says that we're not of the world, that that means that we are of somewhere else. You follow You're not of the world. Well, then where are you of? It means that these motives, these longings, these aspirations, that they're originating from another world. And to not be of the world, first and foremost, means to be of heaven and of God. And let me make this point. You cannot be of the world and of God at the same time. Impossible. You cannot. You can be of God and not live consistently with that reality. But if you're of God, if you know God and love God, your failures, your sins, they're a reflection of that moment you're not loving God. But Jesus has said this. He says they, he doesn't say they're not going to be of the world. He says they're not of the world. That's positionally true of them. Their citizenship was in heaven and not on earth. It was with Christ where he is. And the constant charge to the Christian is set your mind, your heart, your affections where Christ is. Think on things that are above where he is otherworldly. To be of God. But if you are of the world, connected to and led by the world, the system of the world, What relationship does that terrifying reality have to do with Jesus coming into the world? You see, his coming is intimately related to the fact that you and I are born into the world with a wrong 
relationship to God. What is our relationship when we're born? We're at enmity with God, hating God, opposed to God at every turn. We sang rebels to God. My rebel heart was a rebel soul was caught, we sang. We're born as rebels to God. You see, if we understand this rightly, that all of our sin is a result of our rebellion to God, then we ought to see that the opposite of sin, true holiness, true righteousness, true sanctification is going to be a right relationship to God. And so that means our pursuit of being sanctified is not primarily seen in what we're trying to do as far as practical obedience, but it is a person we're after. And the first step in that sanctification is is to be reconciled to God. There can be no such thing as true holiness or sanctification if you have not been reconciled to God. None whatsoever. And if we realize that that problem that we're born with is a relational problem, we've also got to see that as a Christian, your ongoing problem is a relational problem. To not be of the world and be of Christ and of God has to do with a relationship. I feel compelled to move towards closing with this thought with you. Jesus loves His people. He loves them. Perfectly. No lack in Him. No lack of goodness. No lack of righteousness. No lack of perfection. Let me suggest to you this. That if your joy, if your pursuit of growth in the Christian life is so that you can rejoice in growth, And not in God. You're an idolater. Plain and simple. But if you see this, why is it? Why is it that Psalm 1, why is it that the blessed man rejoices in the law of God? He delights in it in his soul. Because that very law is ascribing to him the perfections of God. God's goodness. God's love. God's compassion. And when I come to realize I've been reconciled to that God, I delight in His Word. And I come to to want to live like the God I love. We, We need God to do this work in us. And if you hear these things today and you walk out those doors and you say to me, well... I guess it really doesn't matter how I live because God's done it all from first to last and you're missing this. Isn't that a good question? A good way to put it? If it's true, God chose His people before the foundation of the world in Christ. He already has done that. It's fixed. Cannot be changed. There's no eraser going on in the Lamb's book of life. There's no penciling in. It's God's work. If that's true, And all of those who will be with God in heaven forever are according to that list and the finished work of Christ on their behalf. Why are we so worked up about sanctification? 
You know what? If we're honest, most of us, the reason we get worked up about sanctification is because we're afraid that if we're not producing a certain amount of fruit, then it'll mean we're not actually on that list. But when you come to understand that growth in true sanctification is relational, it's not a coincidence that Jesus has just been telling us that the eternal life, the experience of it, of knowing God, loving God, relating with God, even as He did, that we're growing in that. It's not like, how much can I get away with? How much do I have to measure up before I know I'm going to be there? It's, no, I really love this God that I've come to know. And I see tendencies in me to not love Him. And when those things are exposed, whether through the law or through a Christian brother or sister saying, hey, brother, that's sin. Through any of these means, when I see that I'm not loving Him as I ought, I'm reminded of why I began loving Him in the first place. Do you know why that is? Why did you begin loving Him in the first place? I'll tell you why. If this isn't why you began, then you haven't begun. That you saw His love for you in the cross of His Son. You saw this perfect, righteous God, this good and just God, Sent His Son to die in your place. And everything we're going to see as we work through this rest of this chapter on, on what it means to be sanctified in truth is ultimately, is it any surprise? Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then He says, I consecrate Myself that they may be sanctified. Is there any passages in the Bible that attribute the expression the truth? And the word to a personal individual. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. In the beginning was the word. Ultimately, it is a relational union to Christ and love for Him that's developed by a growth in your knowledge of His word that's going to produce this relational holiness that must overflow and will be observable through practical fruit bearing. That's the process. But here's my last charge to us today. If you leave this place and you go out those doors and you set your face as flint to pursue practical obedience in the name of sanctification without first coming to love and adore the God who saved you, it's nothing but fleshly and vain. And if you're God's, He will... Rebuke you, discipline you, and show you the emptiness of all your striving in that vein. If you're lost, I pray that you would come to the Jesus who does everything from start to finish. Salvation's work from first to last, we sing, and trust Him and be saved. That I'll ask you to go ahead and bow with me and we'll just close the service in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, oh God, I thank You for Your Word. I pray, oh Father, that You would stir in us a greater longing and love for You. Oh Lord, rid us, rid me of attempts to meet standards that make me look good without really being moved in the soul upward first. Oh God, 
I pray that you would send us out into this community, even as we're going on to see in John 17, Father, that you would equip us and send us out as lights in this world that are seen as significant, not because of ourselves, but that we are a distinct, peculiar people because of an inward desire for you. Oh, Lord, we are dependent upon you in every way. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.